We all have heard horror stories of how a remodel nearly tore a couple apart, as well as how impactful our environment can be on our state of well-being. Remodels don't have to end in divorce, and we can reflect our true selves in our environment with the right approach. Welcome to Psychotecture. My name is Rachel Melvald, and I'm a psychotherapist and designer. Psychotecture was developed as a methodological approach to ease issues that come up in design challenges, as well as a philosophy on how our environment can reflect our highest selves. Each week, I will interview an expert in the field of design and psychology to shed light on design challenges. I will also have a special series called The Psychotech is In, where I can offer help to those in design intervention need. If you're enjoying this Psychotech is in, please subscribe to my podcast, as well as follow me on social media at Rachel Melvald. And if you are a client, couple, or designer architect having a design challenge, please feel free to email me at my website, psychotecture.com, or rachel at psychotecture.com. Welcome to the Psychotech is in. This week on the Psychotech is in, I am so excited to interview our guest expert in biophilic design, Oliver Heath of Oliver Heath Design. He takes a human-centered design approach to deliver tangible and financial benefits to the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profits. Biophilic design uses humans' innate attraction to nature and natural processes to improve the many spaces we live and work in. Without further ado, I'm excited to introduce our guest, Oliver Heath. Welcome, Oliver. Thank you so much for taking the time to do an interview today. I know you're very busy and this is a very trending, hot topic in psychology, architecture, and design. So as my business, psychotecture, how we look at how we feel and how we experience the environment and how it enhances our well-being, your work is so important. And so I just feel so honored to have you today. And I would just like to introduce you, Oliver. Welcome. That's a pleasure. Well, it's great to be speaking across the pond, as we say. Exactly, across the pond. And how are you doing over there? How How is it? How is it in London right now? Life is opening up again. You know, we've got this sort of very, quite advanced vaccine rollout. People are getting vaccinated and life is just starting to open up again. We can now meet in bigger groups and there is a sort of tentative sort of move back into public and social life. And, and that's both, I guess, uh, exciting and terrifying in equal measures. Yeah, I think that's well described because in psychotherapy, I always say in trauma work, activation can be exciting or it can be terrifying. It's the same energy, right? And this integration can be overwhelming, right? Yeah. As us social beings. So wonderful. So I would just love to open it up to learn more about you and how you encountered biophilic design and what drew you towards it. And if you could just give me a background, I would appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I grew up in Brighton, which is a a sort of coastal town right next to the sea, just south of London in England. And I I basically sort of grew up swimming in the sea, running around, and then the kind of countryside outside of Brighton. And then when I went to study architecture, at the age of 19, uh, simultaneously, I was also teaching windsurfing. So in the summer holidays, 
I would go and, and kind of teach windsurfing and teach people to kind of enjoy nature, but to look after themselves in it. And then I'd go back to college and, and I would be studying architecture. And to a certain degree, my passion for nature, my passion for architecture sort of melded at that point. And rather than thinking about the two things as being quite separate, and I think much of British architecture at least tends to kind of shut nature out. It's like, well, this is something I love and I love this as well. Why don't we sort of, what happens if you blend the, the kind of excitement and passion for both uh, and create more exciting, stimulating, but also restorative buildings? And, uh, you know, the, the idea, the seed of the idea was germinated then. And since that point, I've uh, run my own architectural and design practice for about 20 years. And my so passion for sustainability has grown. Over that time, that the conversation's really been you know, it's relatively dry. It's in this sort of essential subject of what we call the carbon-centred elements of sustainability. You know, it's about the circular economy, the impact the buildings have on the environment. And I've recognised actually that there is a flip side to this, a more human-centred element that really looks at human health and well-being. And to create a truly successful future in the built environment, we do need to have some balance between a carbon-centred approach and a human-centred approach in order to create buildings that not only reduce their impact on the environment, but perhaps give back, but equally at the same time reduce their impact on, on occupants and equally start to give back. So we're starting to think much more regeneratively about both the planet and the human impact of the built environment. And yeah, that's so interesting in, in terms of, yes, the regenerativity of the environment and how that engagement of a consumer or an inhabitant in space is in that relationship and how healing that can be just by virtue of what you're employing in these sustainability variables you you put into your design projects. And, you know, psychologically speaking, I think it's an interesting conversation because I'm finding some clients of mine in my private practice, let's say, as a psychotherapist, where they connect so much now with sustainability and why we're so attracted to this, I think can appeal to, much like maybe we can talk about in biophilic design, but it's almost like a sense of self. If we're feeling loving towards ourselves and we have a positive sense of self, we don't want to waste right? And feeling like a waste would attract us to, we can't waste. So there's a very interesting psychology, I think, there around just looking at the intrapsychic of how the personal is so political and environmental right now. And you doing this in your architecture is transformative, I think, on an individual, societal, and obviously a global level. So I just really appreciate that human connection in it, right? It kind of goes back to that. Um, so I think there is a level of sort of um, connected with all the stress and anxiety that we're all feeling for a multitude of reasons, whether that's sort of financial, social, cultural. There is so much going on at the moment. And, and if you were to sort of consider one aspect of that is a sort of level of eco-anxiety that's sort of just quietly gnawing away at us. Um, I think there is a sort of great desire for people who are more alert and open to the world around them. So perhaps a sense of helplessness and, and a sort of, well, what can I do? I mean, it's such a big subject. I'm not going to be able to stop the melting of the ice caps. You know, just mm -hmm. recycling isn't going to be the answer. But, but forming a stronger, deeper connection 
to the environment and the nature around us is perhaps that sort of initial stepping stone to caring for the wider environment. You know, if you can care for a plant in your home or your office, right? You care for some plants and nature in your in your backyard or your garden. And if you do that, then maybe you care about the plants in your street or your local park. And if you do that, then you'll probably want to go and visit, you know, wider, more awe-inspiring elements of nature at a national park. And that, you know, so in a way, it's a sort of um, a sort of catalyst or a stepping stone for sort of a wider engagement in, in environmental concerns and feeling like you're more connected and able to do something if you can support and help uh, cherish natural life. Yeah, and it does. And, and just for me personally, what's got me through this pandemic, being so fortunate to have an outdoor garden and backyard, right, to just simply look at the birds and the trees and the leaves, it has given me a new appreciation and a connection and a meditation with the natural world. And the more, especially in this time, that we can bring that into our design, into our homes, into connecting to the greater natural environment, I think your work really speaks to that. Can you speak to... I don't know if you've ever read The Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelard, I think his, his last name is. I might be mispronouncing it. But he speaks to the natural, and, and this is kind of a psychological concept of just the archetypal primitive attraction to our patterns and forms in nature. And how if we kind of connect with that, like, the shell, the nautilus shell, kind of emerging and enveloping ourselves as a snail does, right? If we embody that in design, as you're doing, this can increase our mental health. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Biophilic design, as I believe it, is an evolutionary design ethos. It basically suggests that we've not just uh, existed, but survived and thrived in healthy forms of nature throughout human evolution. So for 99.5% of that human evolution, we've existed in very close connection to healthy forms of nature for our basic survival. So in a way, biophilic design is, is in essence, you know, genetic inheritance from that time spent evolving in close connection to nature, which means that which we actually have some, some sort of deeper connection to it. You know, we can recognize things that are a potential threat. You know, if you show two people, uh, show people uh, two pictures, one of a spider and one of a gun, then which are they going to recoil from? Well, more people are probably going to recoil from the spider than the gun. But actually, of course, fatalities through weapons are far higher than, than fatalities through spiders. So, you know, in, in that respect, you know, we, we still have this preconditioning to, to recognize things that are potentially threatening to our survival. And the same goes through, for our, our natural environments. You know, we're able to spot environments that are uh, potentially threatening to our survival. So if we walk into spaces that are hot and dry, that are filled with dead plants, we know there is a sort of sense of deathliness about them. Whereas if we walk in spaces that are lush and green and flourishing and filled with plants and life, and a diversity of, of spaces and furniture, in a way, we immediately walk into a space recognizing that this is a space that can support our physical, mental, and emotional states throughout the day. So it's about recognizing we still have that connection and that ability to recognize spaces that can support us. 
where we can not just live, but also survive and flourish and become the people who, who we need to be and the requirements and meet the requirements of that space. That's so beautifully stated that it's our genetic inheritance to be attracted to the texture and the, the bountifulness of, of plants and plant life, that it's supportive, that naturally we're attracted to it because we know it supports us and sustains us in life, like a tree would, right? Giving us oxygen. So that's that's fascinating that we truly are inherently, primitively so attracted to that. And so as you come to embrace sustainability in your design projects, I'm really so impressed by the projects that I got to peruse on your website, anything from schools to home to outdoor environments. Can you give me an example of a kind of a case study that you really employ these sustainable biophilic design variables and, and how it works from A to Z for you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I should sort of framework, uh, give you a basic outline of what biophilic design is. So essentially, yes. um, there are three core concepts to it. The, the first is how we bring what we call direct connections to nature, which is how we bring in connections to real sensory forms of nature, things like natural light water, fresh air, maybe plants and trees and subtle movement that we see in nature. The second is what we call an indirect reference to nature. And this is how we mimic or evoke a feeling of nature using natural materials, colors, textures, patterns, and also technology. And the third is also uh, what we call the human spatial response. And it's how we create spaces that are, are both exciting and stimulating that engage us and, and create buildings that, that we want to go to be in, but also recognize that as human beings in many buildings, there are tasks that are exhausting and cause fatigue and stress. So it's how we, we relax, recuperate and restore our mental and physical energy. So, so those are the three core concepts and that's been investigated in different ways. Now, what we seek to do is to try and understand exactly what a building or space is trying to do and pick from the different patterns, as we call them, to engage with nature, both in a direct or indirect way, but also make sure that the, the participants uh, in those spaces have some sense of prospect, retreat, excitement and recuperation. Now, a, a lovely project that we did a few years ago with uh, a flooring company called Interface was a school project at the Garden School in Hackney. Uh, the school is a space for autistic children. And we were given a very small space off the side of a, a playground. Jeff, what, what's your word for playground? Yeah, no, we call it playground too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so it was a little room off the playground. Now, what the teachers told us was that because of the level of autism of the children, a lot of them were getting overwhelmed by the sort of noise and activity in the playground. So what they wanted was a space where the children could sit and observe the activity but not be immersed in it but also have somewhere to, to retreat to, to recuperate, and just have, you know, five minutes time out. And maybe also to sort of more deeply engage with them. So the space we created had all of these elements. Uh, there, there was a window seat right next to the window that allowed the children to get a sort of maximum level of natural light, but also to look out onto the playground through the protective layer of the glass, to see the activity, to hear a little bit of the noise, but without being immersed fully in the kind of overwhelming quality of the hustle and bustle of the playground. We also created a series of little niches that were carpeted with these, these kind of very naturally biomimetically inspired carpets by interface. So these were a series of little hexagons that the children could climb into 
And because of the carpets that had completely uh, softened the acoustics, they could sit back against these little niches. They were sort of hexagonal niches and they could see the activity in front of them. And then on top of that, there was also an interactive feature that created this sort of cause and effect. So there were a series of natural textures that the children could feel, like pebbles and grass and leaf patterns, water patterns. And when they touched them, uh, it changed the lighting and, and a soundscape sort of drifted out over the space of wind blowing through the trees or, or the seashore or, or maybe just birds in the trees. So it was a small space, but very multifunctional. Now, I think what was most interesting about it was because of the level of autism, we weren't allowed to add any real or direct forms of nature. So we couldn't put plants or trees, anything like that, because the, the, the children were sort of overwhelmed and overexcited and tended to pull them apart. So the whole scheme relied heavily on these indirect references to nature. And, you know, it was absolutely amazing. When the children came in for the first time, when I was there, they, they immediately ran to these niches and they climbed up into the niches. Oh. And they, it was like sort of like this incredible moment. They just sort of started to just phase out and just sort of like, you know, breathe again. And they just stopped. And then others climbed up onto the windowsill and were just gazing out, you know, quite mindfully, in a way sort of daydreaming onto the playground. And it was just the sort of most beautiful, these beautiful sort of photographic moments. And then others, you know, once they'd recuperated, went, you know, to the interactive elements and were enjoyed sort of touching and feeling these elements of nature. So for such a, a small space, it, it seemed to quite visibly demonstrate enormous benefits for the children who otherwise would have just been sort of overwhelmed and overstimulated in the playground. I think that's a fascinating case study and, and that it's so inspiring to me to even hear how you experienced the children engaging in this space and how in the autistic spectrum, it's so much of how you were able to, to create a space that allowed them to feel connection, to not socially feel disconnected, right? Because as we know, in the autistic spectrum, sensory, any kind of sensory disorder, it's not about disconnecting socially. It's just moderating, how you interface with social stimulation as well as sensory. So this system really can kind of regulate and therefore it's like co-regulating for the children. And it seems like to watch them want to go into the texture, to want to feel the tactile, the hexagons. The little niches they could call Yes, yes. Just illuminates how space and our sensory worlds can be so enhanced by the virtue of the design that you had had implemented. I think that's a beautiful example of it because it's sensory so much, right? Also, I think is to recognize that this, you know, there is neurodiversity in our, in our sort of societies and often it becomes about Asperger's or, or some other level of autism, but actually, I do believe quite passionately that there is still neurodiversity that's not of that scale. And I think many people know people who, who, who have some level of neurodiversity, but maybe it's, it's all about sensory perception. And you know, what our research is uncovering is actually that we all have different levels of sensory perception to noises, to elements of light or activity or color around us. And what we need to do is to design 
more sensitively, recognizing that in larger groups of people, everybody understands sort of sensory inputs or, or, or kind of receives them in different levels mm-hmm. and are able to process them and filter them out or not. Right. So you know, it goes beyond just being maybe introvert and extrovert because people will be maybe either one of those or degrees of that, but equally may still have problems filtering certain things out. One of the members staff in my office, she is very much an extrovert, really has problems with noise. She can't filter it out. She's easily distracted, as you might imagine, from an extrovert. And she now knows from tests that we've done in the office that if she's got to sit down and focus, she needs to either put headphones on, noise-canceling headphones, or to go and sit and work in another room. So what our work is, is sort of recognizing is the need to design for far greater levels of neurodiversity, just recognizing diff- people's different sensory perceptions. Right. And it's just in all human beings, we have a different sensory makeup. And like you're saying, when one tends to be towards more of the extrovert, they can tend to be more attention deficit or more easily distracted at times, right? And the introvert may be sitting with the stimulation longer and how that might be soothing, right? Maybe, I remember my cousin said once, she she was renting an apartment and she's like, oh, I love the sound of traffic outside. I love the highway noise from my building. I was like, really? That would irritate me so much, you know? She finds it soothing. So it's really, there's no one approach to designing for any client or organization, you're really having to create multi-factors into these design systems. The problem with that is, is that design for a lot of people, particularly interior design, is often seen as quite a sort of uh, extrinsic approach. It's often about expressing some level of wealth or power. You know, think about the marble tops and the gold taps and the, the tassels everywhere and how fabulous everything is. It's about expressing identity. But actually, you know, our approach is much more intrinsic. It's about turning it around and going, well, how, how do we design a space to make you feel better, to alleviate some of the stress or the fatigue that you're experiencing from looking at a computer? Or how do we create a space that encourages you to connect with the people in it, to have better conversations by putting you in a more positive, open and optimistic state? And I think one of the interesting things about biophilic design is that actually we've all at some point had a positive experience in nature. And so it's a one, it's the sort of one unifying thing that design can, can use to bring people together. You know, because there are lots of other design styles, whether it's you know, modernism or postmodernism or classical architecture, but those tend to be quite polarizing depending on your, your, your kind of cultural or social kind of background. But nature is that kind of unifying thing. So our work around biophilic design is about using that nature connection to elicit a positive emotional response to wider groups of people. Yes. And I think it's really in the biophilic design principles and philosophy of it, I think we're so sometimes detached from that. And you know how we talk about nature deficit. And when we're disconnected from that, we are disconnected from ourselves. And you notice symptomatically, I notice in my own clients how when they've been in their apartments all day long on their computer and haven't even gone take a walk. Their regulation systems are so off. They're collapsing with fatigue. They're highly anxious, panicked, going into more of, it's like their systems are going into fight or flight and they don't even need to be in their own places. 
And surely just, you know, taking a little, we're in Los Angeles, so we're very fortunate to have, you know, so many little trails you could, you could go to. It's just so simple in that regard. Yet what is also interesting, I was interviewing someone on the concept of chromophobia, the fear of color, and how nature sometimes could be a scary place for people. And it's interesting how we can kind of, it was associated with the wild, being wild, and the primitive is not so controlled, right? So there's a sense of sometimes I could imagine it could elicit some fear in that too. So it's, it's how, how would you mitigate that? Well, there's an interesting idea called the Savannah Theory by Kaplan and Kaplan, which suggests that when we look out over elements of nature from a point of prospect, it has the ability to, well, particularly healthy forms of nature, to, to reduce heart rates and blood pressure levels. Mm. So this idea that uh, we just need to use those nature references quite carefully because, you know, woven into folklore is, of course, quite scary moments in nature. If you imagine traditional fairy tale where our hero or heroine steps from a green field into a deep, dark wood, you instinctively know something bad is going to happen from right. behind a tree is going to become a witch or a dragon or, or, or some beast or something dangerous. Right. So, you know, our peripheral vision, you know, closes up and we've just got these sort of single sight lines and we can't see longer distances. We don't have that sense of prospect. Then it starts to become more anxiety making. So this idea of prospect is really important, making sure that people can see potential threats, potential opportunities, and maybe have, you know, routes of escape. So when you walk into a building, making sure that people have those elements, that sense of prospect, that opportunity to sit with your back, looking into a building and, and being able to see what's happening and, and that nothing is sort of coming up from behind you is one means to helping reduce and alleviate some of that stress and anxiety. Yeah. So yeah. nature is absolutely scary and we are right to be scared of it because prior to, to having you know, the safety of the built environment or even a cave, there are many, many potential threats. So I think our, our inherent fear of it is right and safe. And I, you know, I get back to my experience as a windsurfing instructor. You know, I would always encourage people to take a moment to look out to sea, to do a forecast, to just see what the, the, the conditions are like and assess whether it's safe enough for them to enjoy it. So it is about observation. And I think as designers, we can alleviate these issues with elements of nature that can reduce stress and anxiety but also help people to recuperate from, from intense periods of activity. That was so perfectly illustrated as you call upon the Savannah theory. Savannah theory, that's fascinating to me. I've never heard that. In how you incorporate safety, you know, it is nature can be threatening. So that is inherent in where we are animals in that regard, like in windsurfing or any water sport, you would check out the variables in the elements, right? So I love that example of just how you would look outwards to see who's coming in, right? That's a very primitive sense of safety. We want to be able to scan and orient like, you know, a child does into our environment and our surroundings. I could talk forever on this subject and I'm just so 
ecstatic that I got an interview with you because this is, you know, in psychotecture and and how psychotherapists who um, went back for design and like to incorporate all this, I like to collaborate and build a team and work with, you know, a designer such as you. How did we get you in Los Angeles? Is is there, (laughs) do you ever do projects? out here? We've had having more, more conversations with people in Los Angeles at the moment. So there are some opportunities starting to rear their head. I actually have a, a very close cousin in Los Angeles as well. Oh. Uh, so um, I do have reasons to come and visit, definitely. So yeah, it could easily happen. Okay, great. Because it seems like the British friends that I have, it seems very complimentary London to LA. We're so opposite in our topographies and... I think the thing that remains is that, you know, we all have some connection to nature and part of biophilic design is about looking around you and understanding your immediate local environment. And and in a way, it is a very vernacular sense of design. It's about trying to pick up on some of those those local cues that people will be familiar with, Mm -hmm. that when experienced will will bring back that memory. You know, maybe it is a particular colour of the bedrock or maybe it's a particular type of timber or tree that might bring it back. Or, you know, maybe that happens through a more primordial sense, like scent. The smell is so primordial, right? Exactly. So, so maybe it is about picking up on some of those, those sort of local cues that you've experienced in nature and finding ways of bringing them into, into buildings. And just to end with, you know, ways that our listeners can in their own spaces, just quite simply introduce that into their homes. What is maybe just, you know, not to lessen the whole design experience, but, you know, just some very simple ways that people can have access to doing that in their own homes right now. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all experienced through lockdown, certainly in the UK, that our homes and the buildings and the spaces we surround ourselves in have an enormous impact on our physical and mental well-being because we haven't had that diversity of spaces that we would in normal life. We tend it's tended to sort of focus uh, and condense that, that kind of reaction to one particular place. And I think as a result, in England, we're seeing a lot more people going out and running and spending time in walking in nature. There are a lot more people owning dogs now as a result. So, you know, we're recognizing that nature plays a role and it doesn't need to happen, you know, just when you go out, there are ways of increasing your connection to it in, in the home. The first one that's probably the most powerful is just understanding the power of natural light and what we call circadian rhythms. So our circadian rhythms are our body's reactions to periods of light and dark across the 24 hour period. It affects our mood, our behavior, and our body's release of particular hormones like melatonin and serotonin. And when our circadian rhythm is balanced, we, we feel alert and awake in the daytime, but it also means that we sleep well at night. So getting good exposure of natural light and also those sort of subtle cues of color temperature at the beginning and the end of the day is really important. Mm. Um, one of the simplest things you can do is making sure that you get out and get what you call a photon shower, which is an intense burst of natural light for at least half an hour every day. So it's very good at resetting your circadian rhythm, particularly in the morning. So a photon shower. Okay. Um, added to that, if, you, if you're working from home, make sure your desk is near a window so you get more natural light, much more like a couple of feet away from a window than mm-hmm. 10 feet away. Um, maybe you've got a view looking out. So if you can look out onto elements of nature that move in what we call non-rhythmic sensory stimuli, 
And that's that kind of that beautiful sense of movement you see of leaves gently moving in the wind or, or grasses blowing or ripples moving across a pool of water. Interesting. It's very calming and very relaxing and restorative. Uh, and it, it creates what we call sort of soft fascination. You know, it's very different from our directed concentration when we're looking at a screen and we're concentrating and focus. And it's very tiring. The soft fascination is very calming and relaxing and restorative. So we have this idea called a 20-20-20 rule. That's 320. <laughs> Every 20 minutes, you should look up for 20 seconds at a distance of 20 feet. Okay. Yeah. So if you're working away, set an alarm or a timer, just look out for 20 seconds. If you can look out onto a tree, greenery, movement, water, it'll help to restore, relax you, and help to sort of give you some level of sort of micro-recuperation throughout the day from the stressful tasks of working from home. Oliver, I think that is so helpful to just outline something so simple. It's 202020. And I never understood why I look at the cypress tree and how it sways as the most meditative or generating just attraction to that. And that's a soft focusing, a soft concentration. Mm-hmm. I am so appreciative of you sharing your expertise, your knowledge all that you're doing for design, for people, and for the environment. I truly value your work and your time. And I'm going to go and take a photon shower right now. (laughs) So um, I thank you. And we'll be sharing with our viewers and listeners your information and how to explore your work further. So I, I just thank you so much for taking the time to share this very important topic and your work in in biophilic design. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Oliver. This is Psychotecture by Rachel Malvald with coaching, consultation, and psychotherapy offered virtually and in home throughout the Los Angeles greater area and nationally. We work to ease design challenges to create transformative habitats. Thank you, and we look forward to the next episode and your questions. If you're enjoying this Psychotech is in, please subscribe to my podcast, as well as follow me on social media at Rachel Malvald. And if you are a client, couple, or designer architect having a design challenge, please feel free to email me at my website, psychotecture.com, or rachel at psychotecture.com.